Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I've got a great guest today, uh, Douglas Petrovich. He's a professor of biblical history and exegesis. Um, he was part of the Is Genesis History Project, which is where I first found him on YouTube. Uh, watched you know quite a number of his videos. Um, just amazing the breadth of knowledge he has about uh, you know ancient cultures and events in the Bible that he's able to corroborate with uh, with his study of biblical archaeology and, uh, and other fields. So. Welcome, Douglas. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Richard. It's great to be here with you and with all of your audience. Well, excellent. Well, maybe we could start with some, you know, I'll just pick a few different topics, but uh, you, you had mentioned that you had done some work on you know, the story of Moses. Uh, it seems to be incredibly common that I hear from scholars that, oh, there's there's no evidence that Moses existed at all, but uh, in looking, that, that does not seem to be at all the case. So I wanted to ask you, what are some of the things you've learned and discovered in regards to him? Sure. And I would say it goes back to 2006 that when I published my first journal article, uh, peer-reviewed article, and it was on the historicity of the Exodus Pharaoh. And basically, I looked at several different characters or pharaohs whom other people have identified as you know potential Exodus Pharaoh. And so what I did is I looked uh, especially closely at one candidate and basically matched up his biography against what you read about in the Bible as far as the the biography of the Exodus Pharaoh himself. And there are a lot of specific requirements that whoever this guy is, he's got to meet all of them. And it, it's kind of like, you know, in ancient Israel with the with the prophets. If yeah. a man who said he's a prophet started telling things supposedly from God, every single thing has to come true. If he's not 100% accurate, that's it. Yeah. Uh, he's dead. And that's exactly what they would do. They would kill him. So um, it, in along that line, whoever is the Exodus Pharaoh, you've got to meet all of those requirements that are in the Bible. What are some of the criteria of the Exodus Pharaoh? That's sure. interesting. Yeah. Well, number one, he can't be a firstborn child of his father. Can't be the firstborn. Because if he were, he would have died in the 10th plague, right? Because all of the firstborn in Egypt died, in, including the, the Israelites, unless they were you know, protected by the, uh, the blood that was shed. So there's one. His successor who comes to the throne, if it's his son... He can't be the firstborn son. That's another requirement. So it has to be a, a future or further, secondary, tertiary, whatever, son of the Exodus Pharaoh. So those are some of the requirements. And another one, very important one and, and very hard to meet, his predecessor has to be on the throne for over 40 years. We know that both from combining the book of Exodus uh, with what Luke wrote. So, um, you know, those right there are three major requirements that that are just extremely difficult uh, to meet. Well, why would he have, to have been on the throne for 40 years as predecessor? Is it because Moses was 40 years in Midian and the, the new Pharaoh wouldn't have known him? And so that's why that, that time period was required? Well, it talks about the, uh, the Pharaoh who chases Moses out of Egypt. 
because Moses kills this Egyptian. And and the problem was that if Moses came back, this guy would be all over him, right? Mm. And it's Luke who says, yes, Moses was in Midian for, for 40 years, and that corroborates this requirement that that Pharaoh who chased him out of Egypt had to have been uh, off of the throne at the time that Moses comes back. So that means his rule is over 40 years. And it just so happens that Amenhotep II of the 18th dynasty, he fits all three of these requirements perfectly. And really, he's the only one in the 18th or 19th dynasty. I had heard from one source that um, there were two pharaohs at a time and acted as co-regents and their names would change. I guess one in Memphis, one in Thebes. And the one in Memphis, I guess, was the the backup. The one in Thebes was the main one. And when they went from Memphis to Thebes, they changed from Amenhotep to like Thutmose or something? Or is this just BS speculation? This is a very bad speculation. Um, is this is this William Shea's work that you're re- alluding to? No, it was uh, another person. I had, uh, I had read it recently. I, I apologize. I don't remember their name, but... Um, yeah, I just wanted to ask you, what, what was the dynamic from what you've discovered? Was there more than one pharaoh at a time or just one? And um, did their names change as their position changed? Or what's actually the real story here? Well, throughout Egypt's history, and, and of course, uh, the, the the first minor of my PhD is Egyptology. And I had um, not only Egyptian archaeology, but three years of Egyptian language hieroglyphics, uh, middle and late Egyptian hieroglyphs. But the way that it worked throughout Egypt's history is that at various times, there either was or was not a co-regent on the throne. For example, in Joseph's day, which is the 12th dynasty, when Jacob came to Egypt, there wasn't a co-regency. But when Jacob died, that same year, famine Pharaoh, who was on the throne up until then, he brought his son onto the throne. And they were on, I forget, it's either 19 or 20 years, but they were on the throne together for 19 or 20 years. So... Yeah, there are times when when you have co-regencies in Egypt that's undisputed, but you never have a case where you have name changes going on, where you have you know a certain pharaoh who takes a name and then somebody else picks up that same name. Not, not the throne name, maybe the, the birth name is the same. So birth names during any one dynasty often are used repeatedly. For example, the 18th dynasty very often has Tutmose, and it very often has... Amenhotep, right? And so it's almost a back and forth, you know, from reign to reign, whether the birth name is that. But the thing is, every pharaoh had five names, five official names, not just one or not just two. And five, wow. Yeah. And so all of the other ones, it's the five in combination that clearly defines you and separates you from everyone. Why would they have five names? And what's an example of a pharaoh with five names? Did they form a pattern? Every single solitary pharaoh who ever ruled had five names. Um, that's called the royal titulary or the titles of the king. I mean, there was the throne name, there was the birth name, there was the two ladies' name, there was the golden Horus name, etc. So, yeah, you you have five different names that every single pharaoh has. But why did he have all these names? Because for certain ceremonies or before certain gods, he would need to have a different name or were these his roles? Is that where the names came from or, or where did they come from? Yeah, they came very early in the old kingdom, and I'm not even sure if we have a record of how and when they came exactly. It's just that all of a sudden we see kings, you know, showing up with these five names, and you see them in various documents for kings that you know we have inf- enough information from. There are some kings, of course, that we have very little on, and so we're lucky if we know all five names. 
but most most pharaohs we do know that. So um, yeah, I'm not even sure if we can say exactly how they they came up with this plan to have the five names. But undoubtedly, it had something to do with you know something important going on in the culture that they needed to tie with the king, and so they they connected the king to that important thing going on in the culture, so they would make you know one of the names for that. Mm, okay. So as you were saying, Amenhotep II appears to fulfill all the criteria for the being the Exodus Pharaoh. So what what were some of the criteria in particular to him that looks like it makes him fit? Well, it's more than just the criteria, but we already went over those three very, very big requirements that he can't be the firstborn, his successor, if it's his son, can't be the firstborn, and he uh, had to have followed a reign of over 40 years. So there's those. And then what, what was the other part of the question you wanted to cover? How many different, so you said these three main ones, he fit the criteria, but how many more criteria were there that Amenhotep II fits so that you can say with high confidence, all right, he's, he's got to be the pharaoh of the Exodus. Like what else yeah, has, it, has come from your research? Yeah, and I, I go over all of those details in my 2006 article, and then I repeat it basically and, and uh, update it in my 2021 book, Origins of the Hebrews. But I would say even even just as importantly as requirements of the Exodus Pharaoh, his biography is uh, things going on in his reign that would reflect the kinds of upheaval you'd see in Egypt at the time. For example, his predecessor, Thutmose III, Amenhotep II's father, the III, he is the greatest of all Egyptian pharaohs. He rules into his 54th year, which remember, it's got to be over 40 if he's the, if Amenhotep II is the right guy. Mm. So Tutmosa III, he goes all the way to the Euphrates River in his year 33 campaign with his army, and they uh, sack and burn down towns and villages all along the Euphrates River. That's the maximum extent of any Egyptian pharaoh in conquest in all of Egypt's history, from the dawn of time until today the maximum extent. So Amenhotep II took the throne at an amazing time in Egypt's history. They were they were one of two world power or superpowers, I like to call them. And the other superpower was Mitanni. And this very Asiatic campaign that he launched in year 33 demonstrates that they, that Egypt was the greater of the two superpowers, right? So um, that being the case, Thutmose III hands over the throne to Amenhotep II while Egypt is at its height that it will ever be in its history. And only two campaigns are launched by Amenhotep II. And oddly enough, uh, his father launched 17 campaigns, right? He's constantly wanting to take more territory. Amenhotep II, though, he only gets two, goes on two. One of them is in the year he takes over as sole ruler because he was on the throne for two and a half years, or two and a third years, I think it is, to be exact with his father, and then he took over as the sole regent, and there was an uprising in Canaan when when his father died. And that's kind of typical, you know, if you have a uh, foreign ruler that's an, an emperor, and you're in his empire, you're, you're a foreign, part of a foreign country that's under his thumb, if you will. If he dies, that's the perfect time, you think, to just revolt and, and right. get away from it. So that happened when Amenhotep II took over. Then something very odd happens with his second Asiatic camp. It's launched in what I'm convinced is his seventh year, which matches uh, 1446 BC chronologically, which is the right year for the Exodus. The Exodus happens in April of that year. 
This campaign was launched in November, and it's an oddball because there's no other Egyptian campaign that I know of or that I've heard about that anyone else knows about that's launched in November. It's a very odd time. In fact, one of the biblical writers that's in Chronicles states that it's spring when kings go out to war. So it's very well accepted in the ancient world. That's when you go because, you know, they're not run by technology. They're not flying ships, you know, planes that can endure any temperature. They have all the elements to worry about. And the best time to go is after winter. So spring is when they go. Well, he launches in November and he captures 100,000 slaves, right? And that's really, really strange. It's completely unique. Nothing close. Oh, why? Yeah. Were the the conquest never to acquire slaves before? Like, were they just for territory or what were the reason for the. Yeah. And that's the exciting part. Remember, it's in November of the the Exodus year. But here's the thing the 100,000 captives, if you were to take all of the Asiatic campaigns of his father, Thutmose III, where he recorded his what we call human booty, which means prisoners live human being prisoner if you if you take the ones that were recorded and not all 17 record you know numbers of slaves taken but some of them do so if you were to take all the ones that do record slaves and you were to take Amenhotep the second's year three campaign his first Asiatic campaign which does list the human booty and you were to add up the numbers for all of those together right the seventh year campaign, the second Asiatic campaign of Amenhotep II, it gives us a number that is 46 times more than all of those other recorded human booty list campaigns combined. Isn't that astounding? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now, back to the show. Well, so what was the reason that he did it? Why did he want to get so many slaves at one at, all at one time? Yeah, and I think the answer is connected to a, a part of that number of 100,000. Of course, I'm just giving you the rough number, 100,000. The exact number is recorded in, in the ancient sources that, that are in my book and in, my, in um, James Hoffmeyer's translation of the Egyptian text, but that's um, published. And um, what's odd, though, is that among the peoples, and there are certain peoples who are named, right, by their tribe or by their their ethnic uh, descriptor. One of them is a group called the Apiru. Apiru is a an Egyptian word that's the equivalent of the Akkadian word Habiru. Who are the Habiru? Well, uh, when uh, Abraham is first introduced by Moses in the Bible, he's going by Abram at the time. So it's the first reference ever to Abram in the Bible. Moses calls him Abram the Hebrew. Hmm. Abram the Hebrew. Why does he call him Abram the Hebrew? I thought that the Hebrews kind of start with Jacob and everybody after that is a Hebrew. No. Does it start with Isaac? No. Does it start with Abram? No. Why? Because Abram himself is from the family of the Hebrews. In other words, generations before Abram, those are officially 
Hebrews, and Abram is one of them. That's clearly what's going on. You can't get around that for anything. And that being the case, it raises the question, well, then who in the ancient world before Abram are the Hebrews if we don't really know of Hebrews before then? Well, we do if we study the other ancient uh, documents, the extra-biblical documents, that mention the Habiru. Habiru is the equivalent of, of the Hebrews, which is the equivalent of the Apiru, right? And so the Habiru... Yeah, it sounds like Hebrew. Habiru, yep. Hebrew, yeah. It's exactly the same root. And Habiru are mentioned in the Amarna letters, which are letters from Canaanite petty kings in the 14th century BC, which is the century right after the Exodus, and, and the century right after the conquest, right, when the Israelites are in the land. And these these petty kings, petty Canaanite kings, they're not even kings except for the king of Hazor. Actually, they're just rulers. They complained to Pharaoh because Pharaoh's not giving them any help against these people who are attacking them. Well, who are the people attacking them? Fascinating. They're called in Akkadian the Habiru. Oh, wow. The Habiru in the 14th century BC, the century after the Exodus and the conquest, are bothering the, the rulers in Canaan. Yes. And they're, they're stealing their land. And some of these kings are giving themselves over to the Habiru and submitting to them. Well, it makes no sense unless these are the Hebrews, because this is exactly what's going on. So all of this to say, I'm, I'm, I'm a hook up the second. He has these amazing connections that you don't read about anywhere else. This is the first reference ever in his, it's called the Memphis Stella. It's an inscription attesting to many of his exploits and his achievements as king. It's the first time in history that Apiru slaves are captured by him, and there, there are 3,600 of them who are captured. Who are they? There are 3,600 Hebrews who have, up until then, a part of the, the party that's following Moses around in, in the desert. And of course, we know there are already from the Bible that there are these uprisings, like Korah's rebellion in number 16. And those kinds of rebellions show you that not everybody was in agreement with Moses that we should be hanging around in the desert until we die for 40 years. So evidently, and it's in a quiet period in the Bible because the Bible stopped after month two. The Bible stops giving us a blow-by-blow narrative of what happens with the Hebrews. So in that quiet period where Moses is writing nothing, it seems that 3,600 uh, Hebrews stood up against Moses. They walked out. They walked all the way into Canaan. They settled down and they said, aha, look, we're getting a jump on this. We're not wasting 40 years and we're not going to die in the desert. We already have our home in Canaan. Well, next thing you know, what happens? God steps in. What does God do? He sends the Egyptian king. And, and then when the king finds these guys, these 3,600 Hebrews, he captures them. And he probably is jumping out of his boots in, in excitement because now he has some of those dreaded Hebrews back. And he hauls them off into Egypt, and we never hear from them again. So this is before the Exodus. This is after the Exodus. This okay. is, so remember, the Exodus is in April of 1446 B. This is November of 1446. Okay, so the group that split off from Moses and went to Canaan, essentially they were entering the promised land before they were supposed to? Exactly. And God did not put up with it. Wow. I know it's maybe kind of a going in a sideways direction, but where where did the Egyptians come from? Has anyone been able to figure out their provenance, where they originated, when they originated, where they came from? Well, really the only help that we have about that is from the Bible. There, there's no other ancient source I know of that tells us where they came from. How did they end up in what we know of as northeastern Africa? Well, there's one of the, uh, what is it? So it's Mitzrayim. I think he is a 
grandson of Noah or a great grandson, one or the other. I think he's a grandson. But anyway, so one of the descendants, early descendants of Noah, he's named Mitzrayim. That's exactly the Hebrew word for Egypt. So uh, when we read the word Egypt in the Bible, the the word behind that is Mitzrayim. Well, that's the very, you know, his progenitor or their progenitor seems to be uh, one of these early. And again, I think it's a grandchild of Noah who, uh, yeah, so one of the sons of uh, Shem, Ham, or Japheth, and probably Ham. One of Ham's sons, I believe, is Mitzrayim. And so uh, they derive from that grandson of Noah. What what does the word Egypt mean, or Mitzrayim? What what does that mean besides Egypt? What What does Egypt mean as a word? Let's see. So if, okay, so the ending of it, I'm sure on right off the top of my head, and it's been so long since I thought about this, I, I don't know if I can figure out here on the spot, but the ending of it is a, what's called a dual ending, right? Mitzrayim has a dual ending. Ayim, Mitzrayim. There are other words that have a dual ending like mayim, just water. Why does water have a dual ending? Well, first of all, what is dual? Well, in English, we only have singular and plural. That's it. There's no other option. In some of the ancient languages, we have a third option, which is dual. It's used of pairs, two hands, two ears, two eyes, etc. So uh, water is seen in it or as a pair, P-A-I-R. Uh, water exists in a liquid form and it exists in a, a solid form, or it can exist in a liquid form and a, and a steam form, right? So it's it has the ability to go from one to another. So so there's a duality with it. Well, Mitzrayim also is dual. And again, I, I'm not coming up with, in my memory banks with the, uh, the significance or meaning of this, the beginning of it, but okay. the, the reason we, I can say for sure, that it's in dual is because, well, number one, the Israelites lived there for 430 years. They learned a lot about Egypt and the Egyptians. And the Egyptians referred to their own culture as as the two lands. And every Egyptian king had as his goal to have this, this title, which was the Lord of the Two Lands, Nebtawi, the Lord of the Two Lands. That meant, well, Egypt was, div- let's say, put it this way, Egypt was divided into two sections. Uh, there was Upper Egypt, which is Southern Egypt, or there was Lower Egypt, which is Northern Egypt. And and the Upper is lower because the Nile River, as you know, is flowing downward, northwardly, or no, in a northerly direction into the Mediterranean Sea. So every king of Egypt wanted to control the two lands. And when you when you do, as a king, control the two lands, it means, you know, it's kind of like all power in your hands. You have all the tools now. All of Egypt is your. And the Israelites looked at the Egyptians and they knew the Egyptians had two lands, not just one land. It was two lands. And so the word that they formulated for the Egyptians had duality in it because of the two lands. So that's why there's this Ayim in Egypt. Okay. I guess going back to the Pharaoh of the Exodus, now knowing who it is, what details does that fill in about the Exodus story that may have been missing or misunderstood or not understood before? Well, first of all, it tells us that it occurred in the 18th dynasty of Egypt, which there's a whole view, the late Exodus view, that says it happened in the 13th century. But, gee, many Christmas, all of the evidence, I mean, and there are mountains, mountains and mountains of evidence that support the early Exodus view that happened in the 15th rather than the 13th century. So it helps us understand when the conquest was, that it was 40 years later. So the conquest began in 1406. So that helps us fill in the blanks with, well, when exactly did the 
uh, did Joshua and the Israelites attack the cities of Canaan? For example, Jericho and Ai and Chatzor. Those are the three that are, those cities are mentioned as having been burned with fire after they were conquered. So then that helps us to, to line up and, and try to understand archaeologically, you know, when when does that connect with? When When is 1406 to 1400 BC, the timing of the conquest? What's going on in Canaan at the time? Do we have examples of any of those cities where there are burn layers and so forth? So that helps us fill in lots of the gaps too. Okay. I've seen a bunch of scholars. I think they're just relying on maybe radiocarbon dating. I don't know, but um, they seem to be desperate uh, and cling to you know, a later date for the exodus than what you've outlined. Um, why do you think there's such a strong, uh, and I guess, dogma about the exodus being later than, than you found it to be? Sure. And it starts with skeptics. It starts with those who have a lower view of the Bible than I have. My view of the Bible is one where I'm committed to inerrancy. So what I believe is that the biblical authors composed, and, and without error, what we call special revelation that God gave to mankind in the form of words that were recorded in the original autographs. And because God revealed himself in this way, I believe that the Bible is um, completely without error. So uh, scholars who have a lesser view, they don't believe that the original manuscripts of the Bible were composed without error. They look at Canaan, okay? And this goes back to the 20th century. There is a professor actually in Semitics, and shame on him, he should have known better. He should have had a higher view of the Bible because he taught Hebrew, among other things. And he was also an archaeologist on the side. William um, Albright was his name. Very popular, uh, very enigmatic, and he had a very bubbly personality. And he was very engaging, and people listened to him. He had this commanding presence and voice. And he basically pointed to everyone and said, hey, look, uh, we've got no evidence of Israelites in Egypt from 1400 to 1200 BC. There's no evidence. And if that's the case, then maybe the Exodus didn't really happen uh, with literal biblical chronology, as literal biblical chronology would suggest, which which would require that it's in the middle of the BC. So he used archaeology to determine that the Exodus couldn't have happened when the Bible said it does. So anybody who takes the late Exodus view has to take the number 480th in 1 Kings 6.1 and allegorize it, spiritualize it. Turn it into figurative rather than literal. Ha ha. There's a hermeneutical problem right there. And I teach hermeneutics, okay? Big, bad problem. You're selectively choosing a place where you're going to surrender uh, a literal interpretation of the Bible because it doesn't meet your preconceived view. So what Albright did is he announced to the world that the Exodus had to have happened in the 13th century BC because there was one relic that had been discovered that was really important. And near the end of the or the latter part of the 19th century, a scholar, in fact, the, he's known as the father of Egyptology and the father of stratigraphy, uh, Petrie, uh, William Flinders Petrie. He discovered a um, stella from the reign of Merneptah, who rules near the end of the 18th dynasty. So this is in the late 13th uh, century, and it mentions uh, Israelites in and so that's the one telltale marker that makes everybody agree, yes, you have to say that Israelites were in the land in the 13th century BC. But Merenoptah Stella doesn't say when they first arrived, when the Israelites first arrived in Canaan. It just says that they were there, and he, he the king, regarded them as scum. And basically his claim was that, that their seed is no more. In other words, I destroyed their seed. I destroyed them as a people. 
which of course is fallacy. It's a boast that never materialized. So Albright used that as his main piece of evidence and, and the fact the and the absence of evidence because there was no evidence of Israelites in Canaan at that point from 1400 to the 13th century, he used those arguments to say the Exodus had to happen in the 13th century BC. So once he did that, the entire academic community Basically, it was like bowling, right? One pin falls after another. Boom, 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 boom. And next thing you know, it becomes the popular view, even though the early Exodus view used to be the popular view and used to be the scholarly accepted. So now that you, you feel like that, well, you know, according to your research, the Exodus is a couple hundred years earlier. What what are the implications that come from that? I know it's a very generic question, but uh, yeah. is there anything like super important or revelatory or... I don't know, amazing that comes from this realization. Sure. It, it means we don't have to bow the knee to critical scholarship that mocks and laughs at the Bible. And one of the things they, they mock the most is this whole concept that, according to Exodus 12, 40 and 41, that the Israelites lived in Egypt for 430 years. And at the end of it, oh, by the way, there was this absolutely, utterly spectacular departure with these miracles and these um, these interruptions of, of uh, the natural order of things in the environment and, and in nature happening that just, you know, defy all reason. So if you adhere to the late Exodus view, you don't have anything whatsoever to go on to validate that Israelites actually were in Egypt for foreigners. So all that's destroyed. But but really, you know, if you look into my first book, especially in part, parts of my second book, um, and my first book is the world's oldest alphabet. You'll you'll see that I attempt to prove to the reader through very painstaking, detail-oriented evidence, jots and tittles, very very carefully going through all the evidence to demonstrate that the world's oldest alphabet was composed by Hebrew speakers. That was the script that the Israelites used in the 19th century BC. Well, if you believe in the Exodus of the 13th century BC, then it's a really big problem for you if there were Israelites running around in the 19th century BC in Egypt, because that is 600 years earlier. Well, guess what? This destroys the late Exodus view. Again, among the myriads and myriads of other forms of evidence that compromise that terrible. In regards to the first alphabet, do you have a different perspective on when uh, the Old Testament would have been written? You know, the first, I mean, I guess Job is the oldest. Do you have a, a date in which you think that was written or, or Genesis or the other parts of the Old Testament? Yeah. And let me start by just a quick aside to address what you said. My personal view, and this is based on a lot of study, is that Job Job wasn't written way back when some people say it was written. I'm convinced that Moses was the author of the book of Job and that uh, the events that happened to Job would have been probably in Moses' lifetime, if not just no more than two, three, four generations before him. And that he codified uh, stories he learned while in the East, and Job is from the East, but while he was in Midian, he probably learned about all the events of Job, and he's the one who codified it all in this book that we know of as Job. So anyway, but I digress. So I'm convinced that the uh, the Pentateuch was written uh, sometime between 1446, the year of the Exodus, and 1406, the year of the beginning of the conquest of Canaan. So that's when Moses writes. And by the way, in my first book, The World's Oldest Alphabet, one of the inscriptions, and there are three inscriptions that name biblical 
figures, biblical personages. The third one, the, the most recent of the three, the youngest, if you will, closest to our time, is a guy named Moshe. Yep, Moshe is the Hebrew word for Moses. There is an inscription huh. that mentions Moses. It's called Sinai 361. And when I was deciphering that inscription, and I realized the possibility that the M and Sh sounds or letters behind those sounds uh, probably point to this word Moshe, which again is the word for Moses. I said to myself, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This just would be too good to be true. So what I did is I took a position of a, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, devil's advocate, a critic, and I decided I was going to do everything humanly possible to disprove that that could be Moses. So that's what I did. I set out to do it. And uh, anybody who knows me, in fact, my wife calls me a grammar Nazi. Anybody yeah. who knows me knows that I love the intricate details of grammar in any language I've studied. And I looked at all the possibilities. It couldn't have been a particle. It couldn't have been a participle. It couldn't have been a uh, finite verb. It couldn't have been a preposition. On and on and on. None of the other choices. It could not have been the any of those in the context. It was impossible. So after disproving all of the other possibilities, I was left with one possibility, and that's that it had to be a noun. Now, as a noun, it can be a proper noun, which is what alludes to the name of a person, but but there's no noun really that works with this because the verb that goes with it is, is provoked astonishment. This has to be a person who provokes astonishment. It can't be a tree that provokes astonishment. So uh, what other Moshe's are there in the 15th century BC, which by the way, the inscription dates to the middle of the 15th century BC based on the pottery found in, in the mines where these inscriptions derived from. So all that being true, chronologically, that reference to Moshe on that inscription is middle of the 15th century BC, which just happens to fit perfectly with a literal interpretation of the numbers in these chronological um, verses in the Bible. A quick question here on the, the story of Moses. What? It's weird to me. Why would Pharaoh, if he didn't know him, allow him to be in his presence and tell him things that would really enrage him? Why wouldn't he just say, I'm going to kill you if come back here? How could he get an audience with Pharaoh so many times without, again, Pharaoh saying, you know, get the hell out of here or I'm going to kill you? Okay, are we talking about the, the moment when after Moses killed the Egyptian or the moment right before the exodus? Oh, right before the exodus, leading up to it, where he's saying, let them go, let my people go. And, you know, it seems like he had multiple audiences with, with Pharaoh. Pharaoh didn't have to see him. I mean, any ancient king could invite or turn down the invitation when someone asked to have an audience with him. So, you know, the Bible doesn't say this, but Moses evidently asked to have an audience with the king, and it was and it was apparently granted. And next thing you know, they're having audience after audience after audience. So, is that strange to you? Would that be normal that someone could request that? Like, why would again Pharaoh say like You're not worth my time. Get the hell out of here. Why would he grant them an audience so many times? There's a vested interest there. The entire Egyptian empire was built on the backs of slaves. Who are those slaves? Hebrews, in the thousands, and at least the hundreds, uh, at least the tens of thousands, or hundreds of thousands, depending on your view of a certain verse. But that being true, Pharaoh knew if this guy was claiming to represent the God of the slaves, i.e. the engine that drives the car for his country and his aspirations to become world conqueror like his father, then probably he wants to listen. 
So no, it doesn't surprise me that he would listen to the guy claiming to come to him with words from the God of the slaves. Not at all. Not surprised. Okay. That's good. For me, at least as a clarification, that helps. So again, because you've studied the origin of language, um, Egyptian came after Hebrew, the hieroglyphs and everything. And then you also have the Jews in in Egypt that I, I would guess influence hieroglyphics, you know, for a second time now. But what do you think that interplay looked like if Hebrew was the first, you know, written language? Uh, again, wh- when did hieroglyphics come in and then how did they influence each other or how did Hebrew influence? Okay. Uh, and here I have to make a clarification. I never have said that the Hebrew script is the oldest script in the world. That's very different. I've only said that the oldest alphabetic script is created by the Hebrews. And there's a big difference. So how does that look? How does that flesh out? Well, the oldest script in the world, oldest script in history that we know of, and it's almost certain that this is the case, is the cuneiform script. It's wedge shapes. Akkadian is the main language behind that. And that goes all the way back, and this won't mean much to you, but it goes back to what's called the Jemdet Nasser period in Mesopotamian archaeological periodization. And the Jemdet Nasser period, let's just say it's very early. It's the period that I'm going to try to prove in my fifth book is right after the period when the post-Babel dispersion happens. In other words, all the bad things that you read about in Genesis 11, about the tower and Babel, that happens in the period right before full-blown writing takes place in Mesopotamia, in southern Mesopotamia. At the time of the Tower of Babel, they were right on the verge of actual writing. They were actually using pictographs and wedge shapes and you know strokes and several other things. They were actually using those, but not to make writing word for word or syllable for syllable or letter for letter, right? Which, which come later. But anyway, so the oldest script is from Mesopotamia. It's very early after the Tower of Babel events, and that's uniform. Then the second oldest script is hieroglyphics, specifically Egyptian hieroglyphics. And that's not the only hieroglyphic script. There's also, for example, Hittite hieroglyphics, but Egyptian hieroglyphics, they date, as far as we know, to about Dynasty One, or probably early in Dynasty One, based on a couple tomb finds in Egypt. And that's not too long after cuneiform develops in Mesopotamia. It's just 100 to 200 years later, somewhere in that range, that all of a sudden we get this full-blown Egyptian writing. It's a very com- different style. It's a very different script than what you see in Mesopotamia. And it's from this script that alphabetical letters derive. And so what I try to prove in my second book, and crazy as this sounds, and you have to read it to before you dismiss me, uh, but crazy as it sounds, it's Joseph's two oldest sons, Manasseh in Hebrew and Ephraim, or in English we usually say Manasseh and Ephraim. Those are the, the inventors of the alphabet. How do they do it? They take of the 800 plus what we call signs in the Egyptian sign list, i.e. hieroglyphics, or hieroglyphs, really. So they take out of those 800-plus signs, which, of course, when you study hieroglyphics, you have to study all 800-plus of those bad boys. But they decided to take 22 from them and make an alphabet out of it. So what they did is they assigned one pictograph to each each consonantal sound. So the consonants, b, r, m, l, s, t, k, etc., right? Not vowels, and vowels are... As in English, we we probably learned this as kids, A, E, I, O, and U, and sometimes Y, right? So those are our vowels. So they, they used no hieroglyph to record any of their vowels. They only used consonant. 
So the constant, the number count for their consonants is 22. So that's all they did. They they took 22 hieroglyphs and they assigned one hieroglyph to each one of the, the consonantal sounds, b, r, s, l, t, etc. So for example, and this is how it works, it's using a, a principle called acrophonics. Yeah, acrophonics. And so when you have a picture, you look at the picture. And for the Hebrews, let's use this example. There's the picture of a house. So they see the house and what do they think of? They think of house, except in Hebrew, it's not house. It doesn't start with an H. Right. Yeah. Their word is actually, that's what's called the absolute form in Hebrew. That's like the, the lexical or dictionary form. So bait, they would think bait right away when they see that. So when they see that, it's a house, and they pronounce in their mind, they, they're saying bait, but all they need to pronounce is the first letter of it, the consonant. So it's the buff sound, that's all that they get out of the use of that letter. And then they go to the next consonant. And of course, the $65,000 question is, how do they do this with no vowels that are written? Well, they just read enough letters to know what the word is, and therefore what vowels need to be inserted, and so, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, all this to say, what I try to prove is that Joseph's two eldest sons are the ones who create the alphabet. And if you want to, you can ask me why I think they would have been the right ones to do it. Yeah, I mean, would they, would they have needed divine help? Like, how great intellectual feat is this that you needed for someone to do it? Yeah, it's not insignificant of an intellectual feat, I'll say that. Did they need divine help? I would say yes, but I don't think it's it's the case where God put something in their mind that they didn't have the capacity to understand. So the understanding was already there. In fact, the Bible is even very clear about this. Jacob mentions to uh, Joseph right before he dies, he says, Joseph, I'm taking, I, I'm just paraphrasing here. I'm taking your two sons as my own. Your sons who were, and he says, the sons who were born to you before I arrived in Egypt, they're mine. But the, all of your sons who were born to you after I arrived in Egypt, they belong to you, right? So what Jacob's telling us, what he's screaming out at us is, Ephraim and Manasseh were born and raised in Egypt. Under whom? Under their father, who was what? Second in command. And I try to prove in my second book that he is a Egyptian vizier, which is the right office for second in command. And there are ancient documents, ancient inscriptions, in which I've identified Joseph positively. And one of those is references to him in one of his Egyptian names, and he has several Egyptian names, just like an Egyptian king. One of them mentions that he was vizier. So Ephraim and Manasseh are raised in Egypt under the vizier. What does that give them? It gives them all the clout they could ever ask for, all the wealth they could ever ask for, all the learning that they could ever dream to have. So all these things of Egypt they had because of who their father was. So they would have been raised to learn the Egyptian hieroglyphic script and how to write Egyptian. So when Jacob steals them away, right? Because remember, he demands of Joseph, I'm taking away your two sons. Jacob wanted them to live among his other sons, their uncles. Why? Because they were the conduit. How in the world were Jacob's sons going to survive in Egypt, hostile Egypt, when his sons didn't know the Egyptian language, didn't know the culture, didn't know the religion, didn't know how to do purchasing and selling, on and on and on, economics. They didn't know any of that stuff in Egypt. But if Jacob could recruit, actually by force as it works, but if he could recruit two men who know all the ins and outs of Egypt to live among their uncles, they could help their uncles survive. And imagine this, 
Ephraim and Manasseh are hanging out for some time, whether days or weeks or months or whatever it is, with all their uncles, right? Jacob's dead. Joseph is doing his thing as second in command in Egypt. So Ephraim and Manasseh, they've been stolen away. They're with their uncles. They're learning to become, you know, poor sheep herders, if you will. And so they, I'm just creating this kind of facetiously, but they go up to their uncles and they say, hey, uncles, we can write in our native language, which is Egyptian. Show us how to write in Hebrew. We want to be able to write Hebrew. And their uncles look at each other and their their shoulders, you know, pop up instantaneously. And they say, I don't know. We don't. And they look at the at their nephews and they say, we don't have any way of writing Hebrew. And so Ephraim and Manasseh turn around and look at each other and say, hey, why don't we correct that problem? Let's give them a script, but let's make it a script not like cuneiform in Mesopotamia and not like Egyptian hieroglyphics in Egypt, which only the elite know because it's so complicated. And I've studied three years of Egyptian. Okay, I can tell you it's extremely complex. Technically, it's the most difficult language I've ever studied, ancient or modern. And they decided we're going to make a script that any person can read what's being written. How? Because all they need to do is look at pictures and know what it is. You can ask a little, you know, a little kid, a four-year-old, you know, you draw a picture of an elephant and say, what is that? Four-year-old says elephant because they know by four years old. So all you have to do is look at pictures and know what the, the picture means. So that's how it all works. I guess going back to an earlier question, again, when do you place, well, you, you said it, that uh, Exodus and um, Magnitude would have been written between 1446 BC and maybe 1406. Yeah. Okay. I guess, so that would be the oldest parts of the Old Testament and everything else would have come after that? Yes, sir. That's it. Okay. Bingo. Nothing older than that in my book, in my estimation. Cool. There's one problem, okay? One big, 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 big problem. If you're going to say Job was written at an earlier time. Now, technically, my first book and my second book, they'll they'll kind of load ammunition into your rifle if that's your view, because my book proves Hebrew was already written in the 19th century BC. The oldest inscription, oldest tested inscription dates to 1840 BC. So it was around. You could have written in Hebrew at that time, but here's the deal. In the book of Job, you have the use of what's called the Tetragrammaton. You have the, the name of God as the covenant name of God that God gave at a certain point, a certain time in history, and we know that to be true. And before this, it even says that he never revealed himself according to his covenant name, right? And when did that happen? Exodus 3, Moses at the burning bush. Moses is given his commission, right? He doesn't want to do it, but he finally agrees in the end. And he says, well, if I go and tell the Israelites that the God of Israel has sent me to deliver you from Egypt, they're going to want to know who is the God of Egypt? Who sent? Because in the ancient world, it's all about the name of the God. We want to know which God we're talking about. So God said to Abram, tell them I am sent you. Tell tell them what? Yep, tell them I am sent you. So the covenant name of God that he gave them was I am, which you can translate differently. I who goes on existing. There's a durative nature to this. It's a participle. Participles have, they're not confined by time. There's a durative ongoing nature. And when the Israelites are going to talk about him and they want to use his covenant name that he gave to Moses, what do they do? They turn the first person singular into the third person singular. So it's not I, it's not you, which is second person. It's not the Israelite speaking to God. It's the Israelite speaking to the other Israelite about God. So he becomes, God becomes in, or he comes into play in third person. So it's he. So it's he who is, and that's Yahweh, Yahweh. 
It's the most, oh. and several different ways with the vowel pointings, but Yahuwah is most common. And that's the covenant name of God. He who is or the one who goes on existing. He who goes on existing. So God was using his eternality, one of his, what we call in theology, his incommunicable attributes. He was highlighting it in the covenant name he gave to his people. So that being the case, that word used of God should never, ever, ever, ever show up in history before God meets with Moses in 1447 or 1446 BC, one or the other, probably 1446, in Sinai. It was not used of God before that. But that covenant name of Job shows up in the book of Job. Ergo, it has to be written after God reveals himself to Moses. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. What is I am in Hebrew? Is that, yeah. Oh boy, what is the 1CS form? I'll look that up after our call. How's that? Sure, 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 yeah. I forget it. Okay. Okay, so uh, another question, I don't even know if we could identify what we had, but knowing what the Bible would have been written on, Old Testament and New, you know, what was around at the time, and let's say papyrus or whatever, and however long papyrus would last, and then what would it be written on subsequently and subsequently and subsequently? When do you think, um, how long would the, the quote unquote originals, let's say the Pentateuch last or of the, you know, the books of the New Testament? And then how many, I don't know if anyone's ever done this, but like how many different versions would, would how long? Yeah. I don't know. Is there anything to be told from that? Yeah. How many times it would have been, I don't know, copied and how long would the copies have lasted and what would have had them, et cetera? That's a fantastic question. And I'd love to have the answer for it myself. So I have never seen anybody publish anything on that question, trying to answer it. It would be a needle in a haystack, and I don't know how you'd even find it. I mean, it's like a blind man looking for a needle in a haystack, and his feet are on fire. So I don't, I don't know if the day will, will ever come that, that that information will be known. But certainly we could say a few things. Papyrus would have been the first, the original. At this point in time, and I forget when exactly is the introduction of uh, parchment, so animal leather or animal skin that's known as leather was the later form, and that was more durable, more long-lasting, and so forth. So papyrus, it, it kind of dies out faster. And it all, here, here's the thing. It all depends where the, where the papyrus is and for how long it's there. Is it in a very, very, very arid place? If it is and nobody touches it, it can just about last into perpetuity, you know, forever. But if it's in a place where there's a lot of rainfall, humidity, etc., papyrus is not going to last probably more than a century. So I, I would say I can't, well, in Israel, it's kind of like the land of Israel is maybe like a between those two extremes. So maybe a hundred years, 200 years at the most, a manuscript could survive if it was taken care of religiously and carefully. But certainly if, if it was subject to kind of, you know, rough handling or um, lots of movement, lots of touching, then probably it would be less than that. So probably it'd be less than a hundred years. That it would last. Mm. Are there examples of other writing on papyrus, you know, at the time of the Exodus? Like, would, what do you imagine Moses did? Do you sit down and when do you think he wrote this? You know, because while the Exodus was going on, I'm sure he was really busy. But when would he have time to, to sit down and reflect and write this stuff out? And do you think he, he was writing on papyrus at that time? There are other writings from that approximate time period. Like, what's the oldest writing that we found on papyrus? That's a great question. I'm not sure what is exactly the oldest surviving fragment of a papyrus document. I'm not sure. But 
yes, they do go, I'm pretty sure they go back to at least the 15th century. So older than the 15th century. Yes. So it's, and again, we're talking about manuscripts that would be in, for example, upper Egypt, where it's exceedingly arid. So yeah, Moses, he, and what, what was the other part of that question? You know, you go with the time period, man. you said Moses would have written it 1446 to 1406, but I would guess you can narrow it down. Fourteen forty-six. You're busy with the Exodus. When would he have the yeah the time to uh, to sit down and write this stuff? Do you think you know a narrower yeah. range? That is a great question, and ultimately, it's kind of a crapshoot guess thing. Um, he has plenty of time as they're wandering around doing nothing in the desert for forty years. Right? What are they doing? They're they're just moving from spot to spot, and probably at some point they were staying longer in some spots than other spots. So if they were in the midst of that forty years at a certain location for several weeks to a month or something. That's perfect time for him to to write out all of this and start accumulating parts of the Pentateuch, the first five books. Some people have the view that he didn't really write until uh, the Israelites were on the plains of Moab just before they went into Canaan, so at the end of his life. Now, that's possible. I can't say it's not, and I, you know, I can see that being, you know, fleshing out but I'd have a little hard time, harder time guessing that most of it would be then. Because remember, Moses is about 120 years old. So it's not the greatest time for someone to be writing at 120. It makes much more sense to me if he's writing around, you know, 85 years old to 90 years old early on in the process. So I'd like to think that he at least wrote Genesis and Exodus very early in the process. And those other books, especially Deuteronomy, he's writing probably later. But yeah, it, at the end of the day, it could be anywhere between 1446 and 06. Do you know the order in which he would have written the, the various texts? Uh, of no, the Pentateuch. We don't know that, no. And again, that's just guesswork. Maybe there's some exegete out there who had that question in his mind and tried to tease it out of the Pentateuch to figure that out. And if so, uh, I just don't know about it if he's published any, you know, that he or she has published anything on that, but... I've not done it myself, so I really don't have a hard and fast view. Certainly, I would say Genesis is written first, Exodus is written second, and beyond that, it's a little bit trickier, probably. Okay. And the oldest fragment we have of any part of the Bible is what, from the the Dead Sea Scrolls or earlier? Let's see. Do we have anything older than the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, we have the, not on papyrus. On, On papyrus, yes, the Dead Sea Scrolls are the oldest. But we do have the that portion of the Shema that's written on the silver amulet, right, that was found in Israel, oh, what was it, 20, 25-odd years ago or something. And that dates to the, I think it's the early 6th century B.C. or the late 7th century B.C., one or the other. So right before, shortly before the Babylonian captivity that begins in 587 B.C. So, and, and that contains, that there's scripture in that, right? That's part of the Shema. So certainly... I think based on that, we can't say that at least a little part of the Bible, we can't say that it wasn't written before 587 BC. You you can't argue that, I don't think. So I think critical scholars are overplaying their hand if they're saying all of it was written in the whatever, fourth century BC. Okay. I think one last question about Moses. Would he have looked and dressed, I guess he would have looked and dressed like the Egyptians, but had uh, Semitic features, right? Like what um, other... Does anyone know if there's any physical representations of him, statues or pictures or pictographs or anything depicting him? 
No, we have no early or contemporary evidence of how he would have looked. But yeah, you can certainly conceive of the possibility that he would maybe dress, especially before he left Egypt at whatever, at 40 years of age or so. He may have looked a little more like the average Egyptian than the average Israelite. But certainly, I don't think it's fair. Like Cecil B. DeMille tried to portray Moses as spending his whole upbringing until he kills the Egyptian in the court of Egypt. I don't think that's the case. I think he was coming and going. Remember that he he has this Egyptian princess that becomes his adoptive mother, and that that woman assigns his own mother, not knowingly, but assigns his own mother to be the nurse for the child. So Moses from just after birth, right, from just after being pulled out of the Nile, is going back and forth from the Hebrews to the Egyptians, and that probably happens throughout his youth. And so it's easy for me to conceive of the idea that Moses maybe would be dressed better than the average Hebrew person. Well, I would think that he wouldn't dress like a Hebrew. He would dress like an Egyptian so that he wouldn't be accosted and say, hey, get to work or, you know, you should be working, you're a slave, etc. I mean, is that reasonable or do you think that, he would have- That's reasonable. Would... And it's reasonable too that Moses had, you know, two wardrobes of clothes. He had a Hebrew wardrobe and he had a Egyptian wardrobe. And when it was time to go, you know, see his adoptive mother for whatever reason, then he puts on his Egyptian clothes and away you go. So that's all plausible. That's definitely plausible. Yeah. And one other item, when he fled, he went to, I guess, Midian. Is that the same path that the Exodus eventually took? I know they didn't end up exactly in Midian, but near it, would he have known and traveled part of the path that they took through the desert, you know, crossing the Red Sea, et cetera? Would that have overlapped on his journey when he left 40 years before? Absolutely. In fact, my view of the, well, there's a lot to say here, but my view of the, we'll start here. The uh, place where Mount Sinai is, is that it was on what we call the Trans-Sinai Highway, Trans-Sinai Highway, which is a road in antiquity that takes you, it's not exactly east-west, but it's more or less east-west, and it goes from Egypt, and by the way, it goes from Alvarez, which in my books I try to prove that Alvarez is the, is the um, and I'm not the first to suggest it, but it's the, the home city where Jacob moves his family, and so... Moses leaves from Avaris. He goes to the east. He gets on this trans, trans Sinai highway and he passes by quite a bit of the ways along that. He would pass by what became Mount Sinai to us. And then he kept going. And that road leads you exactly to Midian, that point in the, uh, in that part of the Red Sea, that eastern part of the Red Sea, where, and it's, I think, what is it called typically the Gulf of Aqaba, that uh, he would, he would have crossed just to the north of that and into Midian. Right? He would have crossed it on land. So there is a view out there that suggests that Mount Sinai is located in Saudi Arabia. Oh my goodness, that's a terrible view. You're really doing an exorbitant amount of disservice to the fine details related to, related to the historical geography and the chronological pegs that Moses gives us for that trip. You're ignoring precision of them to suggest this. So definitely Sinai can't be there. And definitely the crossing of Sea of Reeds, if you will, to translate uh, Yom Suf more literally, the, that crossing where the uh, Egyptian army dies, that's not something that happens long into the journey. Oh my goodness, that's terrible. No, it happens right away. And where is it? Well, 
just recently, an article was put out by James Hoffmeyer where he attempts to prove that the crossing of Yam Suf, of the Sea of Reeds, is at the Bala Lakes. And I jumped up and down when I saw that because that was my view before he came to that conclusion and, and, and attempted to prove it in this article. And Bryant Wood and I, Bryant Wood is my archaeology mentor, he and I are both convinced that Hoffmeyer is dead right. And that Bala Lakes would have been part of the Sea of Reeds back in Moses' day because there's a, there's a receding of the seas that takes place in antiquity as time goes along. We see it in Egypt, we see it in Mesopotamia, we see it all over the place. So that almost certainly would have been the point where they crossed, just just a little bit to the east, southeast of Avaris. That's where they would have crossed. What were the travel times from their origin point? I guess their origin point was what, Avaris? Yes. So what, what would be the travel times to this these lakes versus... Uh, what people traditionally think is the Red Sea crossing versus Gulf of Aqaba. Like, you know, has anyone calculated what the travel times would have been? You knew where you were going, but you went straight there, you know, as the caravan of Israelites would have. Does that help support this assertion? Yeah, the other yeah, absolutely. Possible? Getting some numbers right helps to support this view and, and refute the other view. And it's, it's within a day's journey. It's less than a day's journey, probably even for the multitude of all of Israel to get to the Bala Lakes. That can be done within a day, no doubt about it. And remember, Pharaoh's not sitting on this for days or weeks or months, right? It doesn't take him long for his blood to boil and for the blood of all the Egyptians to boil, and they're Johnny on the spot, and they're getting out of there and going after him. And there's no way. If, if, if the Israelites were going all the way to just short of Midian, goodness gracious, you think, you know, what was the army doing, uh, the Egyptian army, driving their chariots around in circles for weeks? Because... Probably that's somewhere between 20 and 40 days. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what that is. I'd have to kind of work with all the numbers, plug, plug, well, play. But do you think Pharaoh thought they were just going out for three days? Because I thought that's what was asked by Moses to go out and worship their God in the desert and yeah. then come back. I don't know if it was three days round trip or three days one way, but do you think he waited, waited the three days and said, wait a minute, they're not coming back? And then go after them. Yeah, that's possible. Possible. Does that expand the range much? Or again, to get close to Midian so crazy far that there's no way. Yeah, there's no way you're getting all the way to Midian on that one. Okay, interesting. So like I said, and, and um, early before we started the recording, you know, the level of scholarship that you and, and other people have to to undertake is incredible. It's a, it's incredibly high. So I, I'm amazed and I appreciate uh, you know all that we've spoken about. And I really thank you for coming on the podcast. I don't want to take up too much of your time. So I figure we'll we'll end now unless there's you know one like really important thing that you want to talk about in regards to to Moses and the Exodus. But it's been a great call otherwise. Yeah, no, I can't think of anything. But yeah, it's been a, a fun conversation, and I appreciate it. And if your listeners are interested in the uh, journal articles and other teaching uh, documents and so forth that I have put together and uploaded online. You can get them on my academia.edu webpage. Um, you could just Google academia.edu space. And then my name, Douglas Petrovich, enter, and the first hit that comes up should be the link to get you to that. And uh, if you're interested in a copy of my current book, Origins of the Hebrews, you can either buy it from me or find it through Amazon or through the publisher or a couple of other consigners that are selling it. But if you get it from me, of course, you get a, a signed copy. And just to let your listeners know, I'm almost done editing my third book, which is called Nimrod, the Empire Builder, The Tech of Shock and Awe, where I'm attempting to 
identify biblical Nimrod of Genesis 10 with a historical figure. So keep your eyes on the lookout for that one. Hopefully by, let's say, late October of 2023 at the latest, if all goes well, it will already be in print and ready purchased if anyone's in. Yeah, I'll have to have you back to talk about that book when it comes out. That'd be great. Absolutely. Okay. Well, Doug, it's been a fantastic call. Thank you so much for your time, and I, I really appreciate being here. My pleasure, Richard. Thanks so much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.